0: Look at that familiar background.
1: Yeah, how about that? Yeah, so it's it's a great Zoom background <laughs> that I invested in to pretend yeah. I was back.
0: That's right. That's right. You're really you're really stuck somewhere in Canada right now. Can't get back in.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio.
1: <laughs> Alex says, "Oh, I'm back up. up, back it up, back it up." Yeah, exactly. Beep,
2: beep, beep. I have too many things <laughs> to worry about. Then. What people yeah.
0: say on Twitter. Welcome back to Beam Radio. I'm Steven Nunez, and today we are joined by Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody. Back from Chattanooga this time. That's right. And Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Super excited to talk. As Bruce mentioned, he is back from the Great Loop, and we're really excited to hear all about it. Before we get started, I wanted to hear what's going on at Groxio.
1: Yeah, so a couple of things. We're uh, so people can look on the on the site for our our public course offerings, and we haven't done those for a while, but it's a great opportunity to kind of sharpen your skills. We teach two courses, OTP and LiveView, and OTP it's our core Elixir course, and we'll be doing two of those and two of our LiveView ones. So check it out. It's a great way to think about not just the individual features of a framework but the abstractions that make them tick. And that's what separates us from the rest.
0: Yeah, I'll echo some of that. I, I really, I think you can learn live from a lot of different places. Um, I think this is the, one of the few places that actually talks about how to structure it well, so it's manageable and can grow. So definitely check that out. And on that note, I want to pass it over to Bruce. I want to hear all about the loop, the great loop. You know, what was it like? What'd you learn? How are How are you different now? yeah so i want to talk a little bit about what the great loop is and then you know maybe
1: we could talk philosophically about kind of the things that that great loopers share so the great loop is a boating trip it is a circumnavigation around the eastern united states and parts of canada and for us it looked like we started a trip in chattanooga then came out down the tennessee river Turned left about where Tennessee comes together with Alabama and Mississippi. Went out to Mogul Bay. And then we went all the way around the tip of Florida, down to the Keys, went up along the eastern seaboard um, into the Chesapeake Bay, where I met Frank and his daughter, Alexa. And by the way, that's one of the things we could talk about. Alexa made this, this really cool uh circuit board with the help of her dad that tracked our progress by lighting up an LED along the great loop, so that was pretty cool and then we we went through New York City, where stephen we met you and Sophie, and uh, your son got to actually drive the boat.
0: that's right. That's right. He had a great time, yeah, he wants a boat now. What have you done? <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: I think a little plastic
1: uh, uh, blue and white currently is going to get it done. But then we went up into Lake Champlain, across Montreal, and um, into Ottawa, and then across three of the five Great Lakes. We dipped down into Michigan, then along the Illinois, Ohio, and Tennessee rivers back home. So that's the trip. But there are a lot of things that we can talk about. Looping is... It's kind of a a programming construct as well, right? And and there are certain topics that come up that make great metaphors to programming experiences. But I think maybe what we can do is, um, if you have any questions about the trip in general, now would be a good time to ask those. And then if we still have more time, then we can go over to a couple of programming-related topics. And, and I've got a, a few that we can bring up that are kind of interesting, I think.
2: I'm going to start maybe with the most obvious one, the most impactful one. How is it like to live on a boat for that long? Like I've been on a boat for like an afternoon. I think maybe once I've slept overnight in like uh, the cabin of a boat, but I, I can't imagine staying in a boat for months on end. So how are the, like the fundamentals, the basics? How do you cook? Uh, you know, How do you get food? Do you just fish all the time? I'm kind of curious about those uh, those details.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, that's, that's a couple of questions. I'm going to take the first one that I think I heard. One is that this lifestyle seems to be pretty constraining. And you have to remember that when we started, Maggie and I were melting, because we felt really constrained, because I really thought that COVID was going to kill me. I, I really thought that gosh you know i've been pretty vocal about um that i've had some heart problems in the past what do they call it a comorbidity for covid i have three or four other ones including you know pretty severe bronchial disease and and things like that so covid wasn't something that i wanted any part of until the healthcare system had kind of caught up and, and we had um good ways to deal with it and and um so being limited from a boat <laughs> seemed like a, a way to be not limited anymore right it's a, it seemed like a, a great quarantine for us and that's what it turned out to be so um and i kind of want to i want to to say that i don't think that that maggie and i were alone in the broader programming community and really in in the elixir community of people that really struggled to deal with being caught and, and kind of kind of cut off a little bit that really felt isolated in the Elixir community. I think it was a, a pretty hard time for many of us. Um so being on a boat, Alex, <laughs> it felt great and um, it really in many ways, I'm, I'm feeling like myself again after the the journeys, and um, I think partly because the the boat expanded our horizons a little bit. And and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But then there's also the logistic part, right? And you asked about food and my goodness, so we had a pretty limited uh, diet. And so I mentioned the heart problems before. Well, one of the things I did was um, we, Went vegan, and not just vegan, but a pretty restrictive version of that. Not for your typical moral reasons, but mainly for health reasons. And it did everything for me, right? It's um, kind of changed, changed my blood metabolism. Where it's a, I, I really am not doing the um, the damage to to myself with with food that that I did before. You know, not not because I ate really poorly, but because I've, I've got some pretty bad genes, and so we had to we had to bring along all of this uh, this extra equipment to eat the way that that um, you know, we thought we needed to, so so that I could stay on a good trajectory. So so a lot of people say after the Great Loop, you're going to need three things: you're going to need Weight Watchers, right? You're going to need Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're going to need marriage counseling. <laughs> and um, we knew going into that that we had to to take care of those problems so we we made a couple of trade-offs we went in a small boat but we didn't skimp on appliances for the kitchen We, we bought like a big old blender for us to um that would allow us to make the the soups and the you know some of the alternatives to creams and sour creams like cashew cream which is the one thing that vegans get better than carnivore the one thing right and we 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 did change our eating habits a little bit. We went with a lot of dried foods and things like that. And we also traveled with an instant pot. And the instant pot meant that we could we could cook a lot of things underway, especially when we were in the southeast and in the Mississippi and Alabama areas and in the southern rivers. Um, there are a lot of vegan options. but. In terms of there's another built-in question there, like how did you provision and things like that? Well, we're never too far from major uh, stores, like even a Walmart, right? And and there are some great restaurants along the way and some not so great ones, but you can imagine that you could find, you know, rices and beans and lentils and vegetables pretty much everywhere. And we we were kind of chasing spring. It's the way the calendar is built. So uh, there were great farmers' markets and in, in these small towns everywhere we went, and we had pretty good access to them. So, yeah, logistically it wasn't as hard as you would think it would be.
2: That's interesting. I I'm a sucker for for farmers' markets, so that's got to be great having to uh, having the ability to go to all these farmers' markets you know, across all these different states and regions. That's that must have been fun.
1: Yeah, and there's some weird ingredients that that we had to work with that that you just wouldn't expect, like um, in Canada, we found great hot sauces. Mm, Interesting. Which? What?
0: Canada, where the weather's cold and the sauces (laughs) are hot.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, normally you think that the farther from the equator that you get, um, the milder the food would be, but um, we, we found a couple of places. Mainly, it's because we were in bigger cities, and in those bigger cities, there are these little boutique places, and they had a great farmer's market with this this store that was all sauces. And about two-thirds of that were, were hot sauces, just hot enough to melt your face off. I mean, <laughs> and, and it was with good flavor too. Oh, and by the way, like hot mustards and spicy mustards are a thing in the North. Michigan, Canada, New York, we got this Italian spicy mustard. I didn't even know there was such a thing as an Italian spicy mustard gosh we used that that mustard on in just about everything including a lot of things you wouldn't expect and we cried when when the last drop of that came out of the bottle
0: yeah when I, when we were on the boat we got i got a chance to see you know got to see how bruce was living and you know it's weird he wasn't it's not like he's slumming it you know he's having a great time he's got his appliances he's got a ton of food um you know we deaf, me and my wife, Yalamar, wound up leaving and saying like, you yeah, know, should we should we do the boat thing? We, we could do it. They, you know, it looked nice. It looked like you could actually do it. Um, we thought about it a little bit. I, was, I, I don't think we're organized enough, but, you know, maybe with like a route planner, you know, some of the assistance of someone, who, you know, stop here, definitely get some hot sauce. Maybe we can do it. But otherwise, we'll be stuck at sea. Are you With calling
1: like, Maggie and I organized? If so, you're the first two people <laughs>
0: ever to do so. I think I might be say the this.
1: only person on Beam
0: Radio that is less organized than you, Steven. I was like, I was like collectively more organized than me and my wife are collectively. How's that? Oh, uh, I don't know.
1: Um, I mean they're learned skills. It's things that, that you true. do because you have to do them, right? Um,
0: you know, one of the things that was really interesting um to me, just hearing about your adventures on the loop was. Uh, for the most part, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the loop is relatively kind of like, uh, I liked how you said it. It was uh, low risk, high adventure. Is that right? Low risk, high adventure.
1: Yes. Yes. So we spent most of our time in places that were pretty protected. And by protected, I mean that when you're out in the ocean, the wind has has a chance to build up waves uh, over over time and distance. And um that that effect is called fetch. And so with fetch, you can get waves out on the ocean that are, you know six to eight feet just by blinking an eye. Um, and that's that's more than we should be out in with with our boat. we only only saw waves like that once. Um, and they were really in protected shores where you wouldn't expect them. But we went from from the river system mostly, mostly to intercoastal waterways. And the intercoastal is just a a series of barrier islands and small little channels to stitch them together that allow you to stay in protected waters almost all the way around the loop. So we stayed in protected waters all but three days. So we crossed the panhandle of Florida. We crossed around to Key West, also in Florida, and we went offshore in Jersey, where essentially... The um, the powers that be have lost control of the intercoastal waterway. There's just too much changing weather, weather too fast, and the expenses of dredging those channels have kind of sh- uh, have kind of buried people. So they've shifted from um, a federal operation, if you will, to more of a local operation.
2: I'm kind of curious to hear about uh, how the w- remote work story is from a boat. I mean, you know after COVID, we all kind of went working remotely, but that's from the comfort of our homes where there's nice internet and, you know, uh, and amenities like that. But how was how it like working remotely from a boat for that long?
1: Yeah, and I think that I want to um, shift to the first topic, and that is what does failover look like at sea, right? So um, I know nice that tangent. work is just a, yeah, that 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 work is just one slice of that, but Really, it's it's we were depending on on a regular job to teach some courses along the way, and and we did we maintained a um, a full teaching schedule except when we were in Canada. Actually, a busier teaching schedule than we normally have, and the the thing that makes that possible is effective internet. You can imagine that Starlink would be ideal for something like this, but for a boat like ours. Having that 120 power requirement, I mean, that's, that's a power hog. The satellite systems typically are. We needed something different, so we, we got something called a peplink. And what that actually did was it it's, has a, a series of antennas on top, just not big ones. They're, they're probably about um, about four four to five inches tall. And there are seven of them, but they're optimized for the different types of bands that we have. And we put them on the top of our masks so they had pretty good range. And what that meant is that we could take two different signals from two different cell providers and stitch them together to make our best possible signal. And so that there were very few days on the whole loop where we didn't have good internet until we actually got up to Canada where these these systems weren't designed to work with like changing cards and things like that so we had we had a few more problems but we had planned to take our teaching schedule off once we got to canada so in terms of working really it's having enough space and well we were in port most of the time and there were other loopers around more this year than there ever have been um 500 as opposed to typical 150 or 200 mainly because Canada has been closed for COVID. And so she would have the opportunity to go out and play with other people on the loop and and tour while I would teach from from the boat. We had planned going into the loop to actually leave the boat and teach from bed and breakfast and things like that, but we never had to do that once. Our internet situation was great. We were able to to teach from marinas pretty much everywhere
2: that we were, and we never had
1: to teach a class from anchor.
2: That's pretty cool. We'll have to throw that, what did you call it, a pebble hub? A pep wave. It's a pep wave. Okay, we'll have Um, to put it in the show notes, because that sounds interesting and useful.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be interesting whether you want to live from a boat or an RV for an extended period of time. Um, And the one that we picked was called the Max Transit Duo, and our provider was called Mobile Must Have dot com. It's all those words stitched together. Mobile must have They did a great job of supporting us, except when we were in Canada, but they they were pretty clear that they weren't going to do that. Um, but I believe that one of the things that we have to get serious about as a profession is our mental health. And we need to allow people to uh, more freedom when when they're actually doing their jobs. Freedom to actually Go somewhere and kind of float the workday. It is a pretty competitive market for programmers these days, and that could give people an edge in acquiring top-level talent.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna have to explore some of these things that you uh, that you mentioned because I, I really have wanted to take uh, the family on like an RV trip, but uh, yeah, just the logistics of continuing to work uh i've kind of been a blocker on that front then winter's rolling around in the northeast so we're not going anywhere for a little while <laughs> but that could uh, be the
1: reason that you go somewhere right
2: yeah well actually when i when i moved out to seattle many many years ago i actually moved in the winter and uh i had a 24 foot box truck to get all my stuff from the east coast to the west coast and uh, i got hit with a really bad storm so i'm never never driving a giant truck again In winter, there's
0: a chance. There's a chance of any, even the slightest flurry.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, it was was bad because I was going like 15 miles an hour on the highway in the middle of the storm, and just the wind was shifting the truck to the left on the snowy and icy road. And I mean, no amount of steering was doing anything. You were just hoping that the wind would would let up and the giant box truck would stop acting like a sail. So.
1: Yeah so that's that's an excellent segue right so we've been talking about failover systems and you might be surprised to learn that i don't think that any great looper has ever died right and that's that's kind of kind of shocking if you will because a lot of the people that do the great loop don't have the requisite experience when they start right And I've been thinking a little bit about how the failover systems work at sea and compare those to how the failover systems work with Elixir, right? Let me give you an example. So one of the things that we do is a gulf crossing. It's the one time in in our whole great loop that we actually had to leave sight of land and the one time that we had to run overnight. We found that the systems that most people use, make it a surprisingly safe adventure, right? So uh, we didn't do all of these things, <laughs> but we did most of them. So I wanna, I wanna talk about that a little bit. So one of the things that, that great loopers do whenever they have a chance is they run with buddy boats and you're not responsible for getting the other ships across a passage you're responsible to be there to take on passengers if something bad happens or to radio or to relay a radio message to the Coast guard or um something like that right and so that that is kind of a crude failover system and you know i was thinking about it when we crossed when we did our gulf crossing it was really, really calm outside because we'd done a pretty good job of, of reading the weather and um, actually had some good, some good help doing it. Thanks, Eddie, if you're listening, you made our glass light crossing possible. But then I thought about it. If we'd run across trouble, we had three people on board and a dog and we had a dinghy on board that was would have been more than enough to um, to actually bring people on and kind of weather out things until until we were found, right? So the other things that we did, so we were going across our crossing, we made a journal of exactly what our GPS location was so that if we did get into trouble, we could call out with radio, we could we had we had course and bearing of you know that that of, of the last place that we were. So if we did have to use our redundant system, then um, then we'd be able to do so i find it surprising that low tech redundancy systems like this actually work so well for so long you know we we were in places like in, in georgian bay we we're in a place called the hangdog channel so we had been talking to a, our friends al and arlene and al had a bunch of paper maps out he was kind of talking us through through of uh, what we were going to do next. What he really wanted to do was warm me off of this dangerous channel called hangdog, right? It's a really confusing area. And he said, well, in the middle of it, there's this thing called hangdog, and there's a channel that makes more than a 270 degree turn. And so you can imagine when you're just trying to go through red and green buoys, it gets confusing exactly which ones to go through and it gets it's technically demanding to go through exactly the right ones with rocks that are two feet beneath the surface on either side of you right so um anyway maggie and i were kind of going and and leading this other boat down this this georgian bay and we see weather building up outside in the big lake which is just Part of Lake Huron, so the waves and the wind are building. So we said, "Let's go inside instead." And then the red and the green buoys started coming at us really quickly. And I said, "Maggie, where are we?" And she starts looking down the GPS. She says, "It says um, a party." No, no, Hangdog. And we both looked at each other and said, "Oh, oh crap. no." <laughs> oh, no. so she starts calling out these buoys like red green red you know and i started going through them and and um started looking down at the electronics and we had two electronic devices we had our, our main built-in garment and we had our backup it was just an ipad right ipad with a with a plug-in a gps device and it was enough with our tiny little boat and another one uh, that painted the same color the same year exactly the same boat they followed us through. And it was a, a non-event, right? And and all around us, we were hearing about um, pleasure craft and things happening to people, right? Like hitting hitting the, the ground. There was a boat that said, you know, we were listening to 16, which is the international um, station for hailing and for, for a conversation with rescue. And we would be hearing these stories about sinking. And then we'd hear the Coast Guard respond, um, what's your situation? How many people are on board? Does everybody have a life jacket? Um, Where are you? What's your GPS location? And then we'd hear this string of questions over and over. And they were trying to keep people calm as they were sending people out. After a couple of times through this same loop of questions, uh, the the other boat would say, "Um, hey, how, how soon can you be here? And they said, we're about three and a half hours out. And they said, they said, you know, that's not soon enough. We'll be on the bottom by then. And so then, then the Coast Guard would, um, would call other boats and said, hey, if anybody's got like a bilge pump nearby, this is where the distressed vehicle is. And that, that vehicle made it fine because the, the Coast Guard vectored someone else to help them. But it's, it strikes me that the systems that have evolved over time are low-tech but very, very effective.
2: I like the fact that you guys have uh, you know redundant systems on the boat. That is uh, that is a must-have. You got the the iPad GPS, and you got the Garmin. Uh, I'm sure you probably also had like redundant generators or you know, other things that were you know failovers and, and backups. Uh, uh, it's 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 funny that you bring up the you know the story about the other people uh, uh, you know, having a tough time at sea. There, my father-in-law actually used to work for CETO. And I think he was working at Seato for like, what, like twenty years or something like that. He actually wrote a book about some of his favorite uh, moments. Uh, not not favorite good, but favorite interesting stories about uh, you know some some troubles that people found at sea. I
0: think it's his favorite now.
2: Yeah, favorite the after the fact. Yeah, <laughs> in
0: the moment, yeah. definitely. Yeah, not I'll, top ten.
2: I'll put that book in the uh, in the show notes. But uh, yeah, you can get into serious trouble in the water. It's not like driving a car where you you have full control over you know the car and you know your your rubber touching the tarmac. That's far more uh, you know dependable than than waves coming and going or wind coming and going. So,
1: right, right, and so the Great Loop is generally built where you stay out of of such situations. But there are some places where. I won't say that our life was ever in peril, but there were times when our boat could have been, right? That that we needed the requisite, we needed to have done the research that we had done to stay safe and, and we did. So you mentioned CTO, I, I think that um, these people are very, very good at what they do. And they are also very, very generous with their time, almost to a person. We were we were boating in the Jersey intercoastal waterway and you said, wait a minute, Bruce, didn't you say that they've lost control of that and that you can't really trust the red buoys and the green buoys? Well, yeah, yeah, I did. And so we were there because the out in the ocean, there were tall waves and, and there were going to be for about two weeks. And uh, we made a decision to run inside, which meant that there was peril but the peril was that we could get grounded and um well that's that's kind of like your mom saying you're grounded <laughs> it's the, the same feeling you know the same sinking feeling that that you're that you're that you're in trouble that that somebody else is going to have to get out get you out of and the people that generally get you out of it are sito so we were in the intercoastal waterway there were three boats with us and you can imagine You can imagine that um, as you're looking at the bottom, and if you can't trust the buoys, you have to do something special to know where the deepest part of the channel is. So to give you a frame of reference, when the tide was all the way out, if I had a perfect run all the way through the intercoastal waterway in New Jersey, I'd have a, a foot and a half beneath me and I have one of the shallowest drafts on, on the loop. And so we had three such boats. One was our friends, Karen and Tony on long recess. And one was a, um, was a couple, um, the boat name esca- escapes me at the moment, but I think they were on a Kamano troll. And we fanned out across the whole channel and we communicated and we said, hey, where are you? What depth are you seeing right there? I've got a foot beneath me. I've got a half a foot over here. Oh, I'm fine. I got four feet beneath me. And you know, so we kind of zoom over to that side and then we fan out again and we kind of move on down. And then the buoys came faster and faster, and our readings got more and more confusing. And we saw a toe And Tony on Long Recess called toe and um, said, "Hey, can you give us some local knowledge?" And he said, "Yeah, these buoys from where you are, behind you, they're they're kind of dicey. But from where you are, those buoys are good. If you stay in the middle of the channel, all the way to the inlet that we were going to go to, which was Barnegat Inlet, then you're going to be fine. And we did, and we were. And and so that's a that's a thing that I often see." replicated in the Elixir community. When people get laid off, somebody will step up, help find a job. Uh, There's there's the mentoring service that that we've worked together on. There's all kinds of places where people are willing to provide help for something that they normally charge for for free. Because they're fundamentally good people providing good service, at a time that it's that it's needed, I, I really love that about the elixir
2: community. Yeah, that was a great tie into the. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't foresee you tying it back to the elixir community at the end there, but that's I, I totally see that happening. Anytime there's you know like uh, someone's got a problem and they you know they uh, hashtag elixir status on Twitter, people are always willing to help and and uh, and and lend a, a hand there. So,
1: yeah, it's I I found it that way very much uh, and, and especially on something like the great loop. It's, I mean, I, I was a little bit overzealous in making the plans to do this with the Groxio business. There, there were a lot of things that, that I had to do to um to slow things down. And, you know, m- most of you know that, that our dog passed while we were on the great loop. My brother passed while we were on the great loop and that Groxio generally has a publishing schedule and our, plans were to do much of that publishing work while we were in Canada. We got so many offers to help from the Elixir community, Um, even as that stuff was kind of coming down. I was going through a lock with a rope in my hand, and my dog was behind me, um, happy she could be, and suddenly she fell over with a seizure. And I've got the rope in my hand, and there's nothing I can do but talk to her from a distance. As we were getting it into port, Maggie was calling vets because we knew that it was time to to have our dog put down. On the way, the Uber driver that dropped us off gave us both COVID, and so we went from a time where we had all this publishing content that was due to to a time when there wasn't any kind of any kind of time to to fulfill those obligations and. Um, you know, the literary community was very good to me in that time, very understanding of the publishing schedules. And um, you know, two person said, "Hey, family first, family first. Take care of yourself, take care of your family, and then you know, come back and and you can pick up the publishing again then." And that was great. That was one of the one of the best things in our lives. Um, hard time, sure. But to be in a place, in a beautiful place where we could be dealing with these difficult circumstances that we knew were coming and to have the supporting community just loving us. I I got calls from so many people that that offered condolences and support and help, and uh, it was just overwhelmingly beautiful. I want to shift gears a little bit from something to something a little bit less heavy. So I mentioned this idea of navigating on the Great Loop and it it works like navigating anywhere. So we thought that reading all of the signs on waterways would turn out to be really, really hard. Turns out that it's not hard at all. It's that there are red buoys, and green buoys. And you drive between them. Right? Sometimes reds are on the left, greens are on the right, sometimes it's the other way around. But As long as the buoys are true, (laughs) as long as they're making, as they're marking the right course through the waterway, as long as people are taking the time to maintain them and make them true, then we were okay. So I mentioned, I mentioned that we were in Canada and there were a lot of rocks around and um, a lot of them were just below the surface of the water or just above the surface of the water in places that were hard to see but oh my were things amazingly well marked i mean we went through that hangdog channel and and didn't even blink we just drove the boat through the red and the green buoys didn't blink there was a place called obstacle rock where there's a big rock in the middle of the channel it had to go all the way to the right then you'd go around the, the rock and go all the way to the left. No more than a couple of feet on either side of the boat. And we have a skinny boat. So we're about to go down this channel and we get this message on this social media app for boaters called Nebo. It said, beep, turn on your thrusters. And these are the things that move you to the left or to the right when you're docking. And we said, why would I have to turn on my thrusters? I'm going down, going down the lake, and then we see on the chart there's this place called Obstacle Rock. So we said, "All right, we'll turn on our thrusters." And then you know we're going around and we're starting to make this turn, and we we know we're not going to make it in time. So we said, "Hey, use the thrusters." So we kind of you know whipped the the couple of joysticks, and shh, we kind of turn around, and we just stayed right in the middle of those reds and the greens, and the things were okay. So my question to you: This is a metaphor, if I've ever heard one, of being able to trust where you are versus not being able to trust where you are. And so the first thing that I think about is mutability. <laughs> so Stephen, you are in a class. Bring back. Bring you it are, back, baby. You're in a class right now, where you're you're using some object-oriented techniques. How does it feel after all this time in Elixir?
0: Uh, I miss immutability. That's really the biggest one. A lot of the a lot of the uh, a lot of the limitations or a lot of the ways you have to kind of think about things is because you don't have immutability. Um, that said, I mean, I write OO in my day job. We haven't convinced GitHub yet to do Elixir. It's coming, I'm sure, any day now. Uh, so it's you know, I'm still in that in that world pretty regularly. And, you know, right tool for the right for the right world, right? You'll have to think in patterns. You'll have to think in, you know, they become more important to follow, um, you know, conventions. It's a dynamic language I predominantly work in. So that comes with this whole set of uh, interesting problems, no interfaces, no abstract classes. Um, but yeah, mut- mutability is just, you know, it's a part of my life, Bruce. You just gotta take it as a constant.
1: And Alice, I wanna ask you the same question. So you've had um, kind of kind of cause to work in other ecosystems. You could say the name of the language if you want, um, but you've had some problems where you couldn't tell where the middle of the channel was, where things would compile and suddenly they
2: wouldn't compile. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the language and the ecosystem. It is a Node, uh, it's a Vue single page app uh, that I'm just helping out some, uh, uh, a client with. And four weeks ago, Yarn install, no problem, everything compiled. I, you know, I, I got SAS to compile the CSS, no issues. Repo has not been touched in four weeks. Yarn install again today. No JIP freaked out on one machine. Uh, Python freaked out on another machine. And uh, yeah, I think before we started recording, I was telling Bruce about the, the pain here where like in Elixir, I feel, and I think this is something that Chris McCord and uh, Jose have mentioned a lot. Um, uh, where you could take a project from a year ago, two years ago, and start it up today, and it starts no problem. it'll It'll pull down all the dependencies from hex no problem. Uh, generally, library authors are pretty good about breaking changes and and uh, and versioning. So I, I feel like the elixir community does take a takes the time and the effort to put those buoys in place and then make sure that those buoys stay where they're supposed to and the channels are, are right. And actually, when you were, when you were saying that this is a metaphor for programming, the first thing that came to my mind was hex docs, because that's that's the best channel I've ever seen in my life, where if there's a problem with the library, or I can't figure out how to use it, I go immediately to the hex docs, and it'll guide me. No, no problems.
1: Yeah, and I think about all the infrastructure and all the thought that it took to get us to the point, and the foresight that it got that it took to, to basically establish not just the tooling, but the culture so that people valued putting those buoys up before anything else, any other money was spent, right? It's it's We have had green and red buoys that we could drive through no matter what the obstacles were from the very beginning of Elixir. And so if you're listening to Jose, thank you, thank you, thank you all the time that you spent on the mix and the hex and the hex docs. Eric Meadows Johnson also, thank you, thank you. Um, this is really excellent work.
2: Yeah, I think it comes down to, like, this was the foundation for the the language in the ecosystem. And while, you know, a few years ago, people were saying, oh, there's not a lot of libraries, there's not a lot of this. Uh, you know, people were complaining about the you know the Elixir ecosystem. Mostly people from outside the the ecosystem. We we had all these you know these tools in place and could build upon them, and it made it so much easier to uh, you know to establish these best practices and this culture of documentation and and tests. And uh, I I think it was a very a very valuable investment. You know, five six seven years ago, and it's it's paying dividends now uh, immensely. So
1: yeah, it's like this we were in in florida and um we were kind of doing this zigzaggy windy um, path that was this calculated for us by a company called navionics and it's like like gps for your boat and um we found this one insane little cutoff that saved us an hour and a half of winding around and um i have to say it was one of the dumbest things that we did in the loop, right? It's because you didn't know that it was true, right? Is that that we were outside of the buoys? We didn't know that it was true. We had to rely on on some guesses about tide and rock positions and local knowledge. That says, sure, it'll probably be fine, right? Uh, and and you know, it's it's really those investments in in the buoys and it's not just just the documentation right it's it is the the guidance that we get as we build elixir applications of of things that are almost always explicit because we've seen this behavior modeled right it is the frameworks that we have that kind of um provide services implement service some of otp services that we don't have to We have red and green buoys everywhere we look, and even though our language sometimes doesn't have as many libraries as there are in other frameworks, they work. (laughs) They're they're true, right? And, And way back when we started with our Elixir development, it was always worth it because things were true. Something would break, and when it would break with the same inputs, it would break consistently. Something would work. And with the same inputs, it would continue to work, and that's that is worth gold.
0: Yeah, I think a big a big part of of what we're talking about is being successful by default. Like I like the idea of like if you can follow these conventions, if you can write be them conventions for navigation, buoy placement, and um, also even how you write applications. Like follow if you're writing some sort of server. Hey, we have a good a good way to 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 model that. We have Gen Server interfaces, client server. Uh, functions we have, uh, it becomes easy to just write things. I'll say naturally, or just in accordance. I think uh, a good way I've heard it is exemplary. In an exemplary way, you find exemplary code, and you just sort of follow that path, and you wind up you wind up in a good place. You wind up between the buoys,
1: or even, uh, that, or yeah. even that there's a that there's a culture with with buoys that that we're always looking for places to add booties, right? like something really tiny, like the generic type of a module generally is the first argument in its functions. That's huge.
0: (laughs) It allows us
1: to compose with pipes. And and all of our frameworks are kind of built around plugging in those functions that work in
2: that way, right? It's a little thing like that. And this is this is a theme that's been around since the beginning, I think there was a talk by Dave Thomas back in like 2015, 2016, and he drew a very similar metaphor with the mountain Sherpas in uh, in Everest. I'll I'll have to look for this this talk because it's been a long time since I uh, since I watched it, but I remember that. I will help you with that. I
1: I gave that talk with Dave. It was called The Climb, and it was co Beam San Francisco.
2: Oh, there you go. Yeah, Yes. Yeah, so th- I mean, this metaphor has been around for a long time, elixir. So, and that's that's one of those reassuring things that uh, that Stephen was just saying, where it's like you'll you will get on the right path, and it won't be that hard to get there.
0: So, Bruce, you mentioned you've had you had COVID twice, um, on a boat. Impressive, super impressive. Um, obviously, COVID has had a huge effect on uh, us personally, but also you know as a community. Um, what's sort of the state of Gig City Elixir?
1: We're coming back. We're coming back. We're going to announce a date soon. It's probably going to be near the end of May. So um, we're actually moving it forward a little bit. I'm very excited about that. I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are excited to have me back in Chattanooga. It's it's really time to get to get my to get my fingers into the elixir community again i'm, I'm super excited to say that gig city elixir will be back we're going to be doing it in late may watch Croxio.com for the side details
0: all right awesome well on that note i think we're ready to ready to call this amazing episode to an end bruce thanks so much for sharing your uh, insights from the great loop uh, that was really really cool a lot happened and uh, yeah, I'm grateful we got to hear about it. Special thanks again to our sponsor, Groxio, Career Fuel for Programmers. Bye-bye. Thanks for that, Stephen. That was a lot of fun. That was great. That was great. Yeah, it was a good show.
2: Uh, my, my, I think my father-in-law is going to like this episode. I'll send it to on <laughs> <laughs> It's an
1: audacious dream, and um, it's good to be back.